Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. This special edition episode of the Mod Pod has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to the final episode of the first season of the podcast miniseries Genetics and Eye Care Today. I'm Dr. Nicole Fram, and I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Barnett. Hello, listeners. So I'm an anterior segment surgeon and a partner at Advanced Vision Care in Los Angeles. And I'm the principal optometrist at UC Davis Eye Center in Sacramento, California. And just a quick reminder about our mission with Genetics and Eye Care Today we aim to explore the intersection of genetic testing and eye care with a specific focus on Avigen, the genetic eye test. Like Dr. Fran said, this is our final episode of season one, which means that if this is your first time tuning in, you've got a rich library of content to listen to when you're finished with this episode. Stick with us for this episode, and when you're done, we recommend going back in your podcast feed to listen to the other installments from the season or you can go to geneticsandeyecare.com for all of the episodes. Now that we're done with all this housekeeping, let's get into the episode. Dr. Fram, the approval of corneal collagen crosslinking, or CXL, by the US FDA in 2016 was a watershed moment in the history of keratoconus. It meant that patients with the disease were able to have progression arrested and could possibly forego other therapies. So Dr. Fram, can you tell me what keratoconus therapy looked like prior to cross-linking being approved in the U.S.? So it's a really interesting time right now because before, patient would come in, be diagnosed with keratoconus, and basically they would be really young and we would say to them, I hope you don't progress. Here are some contact lenses. Please don't rub your eyes. Maybe put them on some medications for allergies and see them, you know, every six months to make sure they weren't progressing. Uh, But if they did progress, it was really just, you know, a penetrating keratoplasty or a deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, which is not a horrible option, but it was heartbreaking because we really didn't know who was going to progress more likely, who wouldn't progress, and whether there was anything we can do to halt the progression. So currently, now we have benefits such as corneal crosslinking to help us halt the progression and definitely rehabilitate vision through scleral contact lenses and avoid penetrating keratoplasty. That's exactly right on. And we both have so many patients that I can think of where crosslinking has really just changed their lives and prevented progression. It's been completely a game changer in keratoconus. So let's go a little deeper on cross-linking. Walk me through your practice's protocol for administering this therapy. So when a patient comes in the office, oftentimes they're referred by their optometrist or their very astute ophthalmologist, and they come in either with a diagnosis or a suspicion of the diagnosis. Uh, So we do our corneal topography and tomography. Uh, We look at the ocular surface. And we look at an autorefraction, even a simple autorefraction can tip you off. And when a patient's not refractable past 2030 or 2040, that can be a tip in a young person that something else is going on and get that photography. 
So what we do after that is we look at the cornea, look for any sort of corneal scarring, any striae in the cornea, and then we start to have the conversation. And this is where it's totally different than it used to be. It used to be, you know, you have this condition, it's a genetic condition. We don't necessarily know exactly what causes it, but we know that your cornea is weaker than other people. And over time, it can warp and cause a lot of irregular astigmatism and cause corneal transplantation. So we have a procedure now, and the procedure is corneal crosslinking. And with this procedure, we can try to halt the progression. And we really tell them that we want to stop the disease in its tracks. And there are some circumstances where you may progress, but with careful, careful surveillance, uh, we can definitely change the progression of your visual outcome. When I actually do the procedure, I try and really give them realistic expectations. So I'll ask them, you know, you have to bring someone with you. The procedure takes about an hour and a half. Um, we take the surface cells off in many cases, and then we use a riboflavin, which is like a vitamin B uh, drop. Uh, and then we make sure that the cornea has enough of it in there, and then we shine UV light. And by shining that light, it can create this connection between your weakened uh, collagen fibrils so that they are strengthened and the cornea won't warp over time. I also tell them that if we take the epithelium off, that they're going to have some pain. And so I say, I don't know if you like me now, but you're not going to like me and, you know, for two days. <laughs> and then after that, I promise you'll like me again. So we'll use uh, a Procara um, frozen amniotic membrane because we found in our practice that there was less corneal haze and infection. Um, and the epithelium is healed within two to three days uh, with this strategy. Uh, and then I watch them very carefully afterwards for any sort of uh, corneal uh, infection or corneal haze. And so we taper the steroids, topical steroids very slowly and we have regular visits. So I follow them exactly how I followed them in the FDA trial. So it's one day, one week, one month, three months, six months. Um, we do a lot of imaging with an anterior segment OCT where you can see the collagen crosslinking line. So you know where you actually crosslinked. And that's really helpful to show the patient to say, look, we did something here. And then we reassure them that it's going to take months to years to remodel, but we'll watch them very carefully. Those are, those are such excellent points. Uh, one minor thing to add is when patients come to me and we talk about cross-linking, I always tell them that it is not refractive surgery. So it's not necessarily going to correct their vision. They still might need glasses or contact lenses after, but it definitely is such a great procedure to prevent progression. Yeah. And that's a critical point. Thank you for bringing that up. It is so important to tell them, you know, this is not like LASIK. Um, this is really a procedure that strengthens your cornea and your vision will be the same most likely afterwards. Um, and then we tell them in a few months, you'll be, you know, able to be fit for a scleral lens uh, to get your best corrected vision. And so I think that's a critical point that you mentioned. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And, you know, you brought up some great points on how to look for keratoconus, but just in case practitioners don't have fancy instrumentation, some other things that we can do is one, look at the quality of vision. So even if vision is 20-20, it might not be a crisp and clear 20-20. 
it's kind of a, a weak 2020. Another thing is to check retinoscopy, look for scissors on retinoscopy. Look at the K ratings. If it's 46 and above, I'm always thinking keratoconus. I look at the Myers, the quality of those keratometry readings as well. Just looking for astigmatism. Simply, if there's a change and increase in astigmatism, the axis or rotation, if there's asymmetry uh, between the two eyes, and also, if a patient has just been going through a lot of glasses and contact lens prescriptions in the last few years, I'm always suspicious for keratoconus. Absolutely. And then if they have keratoconus, you know, 10% of patients that have known keratoconus will have a first degree relative with keratoconus. And so in those patients, I mention Avagen and the ability to test for corneal dystrophy, in particular, the gene for keratoconus. And I mention it for two reasons. One is you mentioned this great point about the asymmetry. We always have this question, you know, do we really need to treat the other eye? Um, having that risk stratification that comes with the Avagen testing really helps me decide the timing and the amount of surveillance I have to do for that patient. And then in addition to that, one of the powers of having these family-based studies is that if we encourage patients to get their family members tested, we can get one step further into finding the genes that are even closer linked with why keratoconus is happening. And so these are critical things that we can do to make sure that we can help these patients and then get more and more and more data so that we can do better for our patients in the future by using genetics and the connection with genetics to our eye care. Those are such excellent points. So walk me through a hypothetical patient encounter in which you use the Avagen genetic eye test. So, you know, I had the privilege of um, cross-linking a 12-year-old child in one of the FDA trials. So it was really an incredible opportunity. And through that uh, cross-linking experience, um, more and more patients in that family uh, became, you know, surveilled in our practice. And most recently, you know, there was a cousin of that 12-year-old child that I saw, and I wanted to use the Avagen testing, and we used it, and we saw that there was a moderate risk. And so it, what it caused me to do was to have more frequent visits with that patient and make sure that we started to bring this up to the family that this is something that we want to do. We don't want to necessarily wait for this family member to progress. And this was just, you know, instead of just hoping for the best, now we can use, you know, real data to help us plan treatments for our patients. What a, what a great story and how important for the entire family. I, I really believe that when we're treating patients and especially with cross-linking and specialty contact lenses, it's not just the one person, it's their spouses, it's their children, it's families and really communities. So you're helping so many different people. And then the typical patient that I'm using the Avagen testing on is the refractive surgery consult. Um, so besides keratoconus and, and family history, it's really refractive patients that you don't want to kind of tip over the edge. And it gives us a lot more confidence um, for the patient and the doctor when we're trying to make this decision between PRK and LASIK, it doesn't have to be a gut feeling anymore. So if we see truncated bow tie 
or if we see a lot of astigmatism in a young person, or we have questions about the thickness of the cornea and, you know, inferior steepening, we can actually use clinical data, you know, to help us guide our decision. And I, I find myself saying, well, I feel like this is not the right candidate. But now we can actually use a risk stratification with the Avagen testing that is going to tell us whether it's low, medium, or high genetic risk for keratoconus. Exactly right on. So thank you so much for the insights. Let's take a break and then hop into our next segment. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. This special edition episode of CRST the Podcast has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. The inherited nature of keratoconus means that family members of patients with this condition may be at risk of developing it. Dr. Barnett, as an optometrist, you're often the first clinician to recognize keratoconus in patients and are sometimes responsible for having conversations about expanded screening for family members. Before we hear about your specific protocols, can you speak about the importance of evaluating the family members of a keratoconus patient? Yes, that's such a great point. So I have so many patients in my clinic who have keratoconus, who I've fit with specialty contact lenses, and I make sure to talk to every single patient about the importance of eye exams for their family members. And I've been doing this for many, many years. But now we have Avagen, so we actually have a genetic eye test where we can assess the risk factors for keratoconus earlier than before. So I'm telling all of my patients that, that we have this technology. This is something that is going to benefit their children, their spouses, their cousins, their entire family. And my patients are so incredibly excited because they don't want, say, their children to go through all that they've been through in their life. So I do think it's important to screen every single patient, regardless of family history, just every single patient for keratoconus. So thinking of it like myopia. We don't want any child to progress in myopia. Think of it like dry eye. We're screening dry eye in every single patient in our chair. And the same thing for keratoconus. So we really want to look out for keratoconus in every single patient. There's a great study being conducted right now in kids, just a, a huge population study, kids and evaluating for keratoconus. I'm very excited to see what that data says. But it's something that if a person has any sort of astigmatism, if they're the changes that I mentioned before, if they don't have a great visual outcome, even with the standard refraction, I'm looking for keratoconus. So when I'm talking to my patients, I'm telling them we have now this new technology that could help their family members, help their children and this could be really in any age of a person. So it could be someone who's young um, in that college age. We're seeing so much keratoconus at that, in that age. But it could be someone who's in their 20s or 30s. If there are any changes in their refractive error, especially in astigmatism, I'm looking for keratoconus. 
I think that's so important to have kind of a protocol in your practice. And it's like, I find that if I have a protocol in my practice, I'm less likely to miss things. And so I love uh, your analogy with dry eye and myopia. You just go through the standard testings that you would do for each patient so that you don't miss keratoconus. Because if you're busy and you're rushing, you could definitely miss it. And then it can have, you know, big, big complications if you're not catching it early and doing corneal crosslinking early. So can you share an example of a patient with keratoconus who had a family member that benefited from your expanded screening? Yes, definitely. And one more point I just wanted to add that I think is so important is also teaching staff um, to be on the lookout. So if staff is doing pretesting, if they're doing keratometry readings, informing them, hey, you know, if it, if the Ks are greater than 46, let's let's evaluate. Let's do perhaps additional testing if you have that. And my staff, they feel more empowered too that they they have this knowledge and they're always on the lookout for keratoconus, which really helps us and our patients too. Right. And a huge sense of pride. I find that when they, you know, they did a topography and they figured it out or they did an, an auto refraction and figured it out, they feel a tremendous amount of pride in caring for the patient. Exactly, which is which is for the best of the patient, which is the most important. So, so sharing the story. So this was a patient I just saw. He's a 55-year-old male. He's an anesthesiologist. And it's kind of a fun story because I saw his wife for many years for regular soft multifocal contact lenses. And she told me about her husband and he was really hesitant to come in. But then I saw him. He has advanced keratoconus, fit him with scleral lenses. He's been doing great for so many years. But I had talked to him when I first, the first time I saw him, even before I saw him and I saw his wife about the importance of screening for his children. So he had two teenage children at the time. And so the kids came in and one of them was really suspicious with Pentacam. And I, and I actually did send her on to one of our corneal specialists because I was concerned about keratoconus, even though she had 20-20 vision normal corneal thickness. Based on the family history and her pentacam, I was I was quite concerned. So just recently now, when I saw them back, I ordered the Avigen test and the results are still pending. But this test is going to be another tool to personalize the management for this patient. Absolutely. And so, you know, we know that if the test comes back at high risk, uh, for keratoconus, then you'd obviously refer for crosslinking. But what if it comes back low risk or borderline? What do we do? Right. So it really, it really depends. It's kind of this case is interesting because I already sent her prior to uh, the genetic test being available. But if it's low risk, I'm going to monitor more closely. I'm going to talk about avoiding eye rubbing and prescribe perhaps a mast cell stabilizer, antihistamine for allergies explain, I always love going over everything with patients, really explaining to them what I'm looking for, why I'm looking for it, why it's important to come back. And actually both of these kids have been in different places for college at the time too. So I, I want to see them back when they're home over breaks and things like that. And if it's moderate risk, I'm still going to refer for crosslinking. And in this case, the pentacam, I was very suspicious. So I did refer already. But just remember that if you're not exactly sure of the data right in front of you, 
it's great to monitor and just watch more closely. I love repeating the pentacam and actually uh, using the data to look for progression within that instrument as well. Yeah, so looking at the difference maps. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so what do you mean by close monitoring? Is that every three months? Is it every four months? It, it depends. It really depends. So it could be every four months. It could be every six months. If they're really low risk, it could be once a year explaining the importance of why I want to repeat the measurements. But oftentimes it's more often than annually if it's moderate risk. And if it's high risk, it could even be every three to four months. It, it really depends on the patient and the individual. So we want to emphasize how easy this Avagen testing actually is. So it's just a cheek swab. So inside the mouth, you just take a swab. So tell me how hard is this, easy is this in your pediatric patient population, for example? Yes. So it's actually a really easy thing to do. And, and I did it myself um, just to experience it. So it's a swab that is done on the inside of the mouth. So it can be done even in children, even in babies, really quite simple. And then the swab is taken, it's put into this little vial. And the really nice thing is, is that it's not painful at all. All this information is sent off, patient privacy is protected, the results are received a few weeks later. And a really great advantage is that there's genetic counseling with a board certified genetic counselor for both patients and doctors who have questions. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Burnett. This has been a great conversation. I've learned so much from you. Uh, we're gonna close out the episode after a final word. This special edition episode of CRST The Podcast has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. Just a final word before we close out this first season of Genetics and iCare Today. World Keratoconus Day occurs in November, and we thought it was a perfect opportunity in light of this day to remind our listeners about the importance of screening the family members of your current keratoconus patients to assess their genetic risk. As we just heard from my interview with Dr. Barnett, the genetic predisposition to keratoconus is real, and it falls on clinicians to screen our patients. If your keratoconus patients have children or siblings, recommend that they visit your office for a clinical consult and possibly have an Avagen genetic test, which is an early detection tool we didn't previously have. So with that in mind, we want to thank you for joining us on Genetics and Eye Care today. If you're already in a podcast app, Subscribe to this podcast so you'll get episodes of Season 2 when they're released. If you're listening on the iTube site, just search for the CRST The Podcast or The Mob Pod on a podcast platform to subscribe and get future episodes. Until Season 2, I'm Melissa Barnett. And I'm Nicole Fram. Asking you to join us next season on Genetics and Eye Care Today.